<laughs> Somebody's been around our ministry before. We got a good hoo which basically means get off your ear and do something. I like to minister on our military bases, too, um, so that kind of comes out from time to time. So we are blessed, again, Harold and Linda. Uh, again, those of you who are new that weren't here this weekend, um, 41. 41 years we're coming up to being married. Obviously, she was under four when I married her. Um, we've got three grown-up children, and we're blessed. Life is good. About a third of our life is invested overseas, um, and we right now are focused on the Muslim world. Okay. This is Harold. He sits and reads and writes for six to seven hours every day. He goes into a little hole, and he doesn't talk about his books. He was a good Catholic quiet boy. I was raised Episcopalian, so I'm a little bit more cheeky, okay? So, I, oh, I marked it. And her father was a marine bartender. That helps, too. No shame. I'm bad. So, Harold, uh, this, is a, this was his life work, okay? It's how many pages? 900. 900-ish, Okay. I thought it was over a thousand. So systematic, it has a big, it has a big honking scary title. Systematic theology for the new apostolic reformation and exposition in father-son theology. So we first edition was father-son theology. Peter Wagner asked us to put that title on it so it could infiltrate his circle. Um, we don't know if we'll probably won't keep the title. Um, but systematic theology is the last class you take in seminary or Bible school. And what it does is it um, gives you an Excel spreadsheet, columns and rows. Okay, columns would be God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the earth, angels, people. Okay, a row would be grace, a row would be sin. And then you fill in the cell of the intersecting cell. What does God do with sin? What does Jesus do with sin? What does Holy Ghost do with sin? What does the earth do with sin? What do angels do with sin? And you kind of say, this is what I believe, which is a task in and of itself. But the study of it is that you push it back against the wall, and then you look at God in his column, sin, grace, and her in their row. Okay? And then if you, it's like, yep, 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 oop, that one doesn't match. Okay? Yep, yep. Oh, that one doesn't match. So then you go back and you study again. Today, when Harold talked last night about Western Christianity, we have a systematic th theology that's built by John Calvin. John Calvin was a lawyer 500-some years ago. Um, he was a lawyer before he was a Christian, and he had to organize it, and he made a system of thought where everything matched well with, for what the pieces that he had in the Christian world at the time. So, and so we have had experiences, reformations in a cell. Holy Ghost shows up in the Catholic Church, woo! But that's just one little cell, doesn't change the system of thought. So the system of thought that lasts 500 years, we need to look, pull it all out, okay? So that's what Harold did here, and he uprooted Socrates, Plato, Aristotle stuff. And who's the other guy after? Plotinus. Plotinus. And he looked at the Bible, what the Bible said. So the book is a little scary, but it's kind of a reference book. So there's a section um, called Angeology, Study of Angels. And the point is just a half a page. It's a cell. And I'm going to read you just the first little paragraph so you kind of get a drift. Angels are spiritual beings referred to as, quote, ministering spirits, verse, Hebrews 1.14. They're incorporable, which is a hard word, and it's in bold, so you know it's a new word for you, meaning they have no physical bodies, but some angels take on bodily form as to appear as humans, verse, Hebrews 13.2. Some people have been allowed to see angels in their spiritual, incorporable state, for example, verse, verse. Sometimes angels appear clothed in shining light, verse. All of Harold's other books are a way, a, a thought process for you to disengage from a current thought to grab a new thought. This is more of a reference. He does a little introduction, 
has nice little boxes. Everybody who came and took pictures last night of the little boxes will be happy because all those little pictures are here. This is the whole pot of tea, okay, from what he taught last night. That's it. I should give it away. So, if your name is Sue, you may come up. First, Sue. It's got to be a Sue? Wow. Okay, I see a hand. Well, there's a wave. I can't jump down two feet and run. Thank you. Susan will work. If somebody that loves you calls you Sue, you, you're it. You're... Hallelujah. Yeah, I don't like talking about my books and stuff, but she comes along and we're blessed. She will jump up at any time, okay, and say something that totally surprises me. So that's why it's not planned at all, okay? Uh, and she also helps people um, because she can ask me questions to make me clarify things that she knows everybody's thinking about. I was a third grade teacher, so if the third grade teacher's not clicking, then I figure the rest of the world isn't clicking too. <laughs> yes, hallelujah. So um, I usually don't know what I'm speaking about until worship, and sometimes even then, and Linda leaned over and says, you need to start by talking about what salvation meant throughout church history. So real quickly, um, if I have this timeline again, I used it last night. Um, I put the cross here to represent Jesus on the earth and the year 2000 at this end. But the understanding of how to become a Christian changed over time, and it helps to understand it. If we mark this time 312, that was the change in church history because before that time, Christians were persecuted for their faith. The Roman Empire disallowed persecuted Christians, but the Emperor Constantine in that year claimed to have had a vision to go to war in the name of Jesus. He did it, he conquered, and then the following year he made Christianity legal in the year 313. Well, that changed the Roman Empire, which changed all of Europe. So as soon as Christianity is now legal, they get favor from the government. Now there's both good and bad. When you have the merger of religion and state, there is a lot of conflict, a lot of compromise. Christianity became lukewarm in many ways. But at the same time, Christianity became the only religion that was legal on 376. So within 75 years, Christianity had displaced all other religions. And remember, they were worshiping Zeus and Poseidon and Mars and all those other gods. But by the year 376... They were all illegal, and the only religion allowed throughout the Roman Empire was Christianity. That meant millions and millions of people were in church every Sunday morning. They were hearing about Jesus Christ. So you can either look at that point in history as negative or positive. Negative because of the merger of government and state, but positive because millions and millions of people are hearing about Jesus where they're coming from multiple gods before that time. But now, they want to join the Roman Empire, united not just around government, but around religion. Because if you can have one religion and one government throughout an empire, it brings a lot of cohesion. So one of the emperors in 325 asked for all the bishops in the world to come together and develop the uh, a creed, a statement of faith of what Christianity is, so all of his empire could be united. The bishops got together, and it developed the Nicene Creed. So now these masses of people can't read. So if you can give them something to memorize, now you have a formula, you have a statement. Creeds were very important for people who can't read. So if they could develop a creed, it can be said over all of the known world, the Roman Empire at that time. Now the Nicene Creed eventually becomes what's called the Apostles' Creed. It is stated more on Sundays around the world than any other thing that's stated. Today, there are almost a billion people who will say that creed across the world today. Almost a billion are saying it. Most liturgical churches say it every Sunday morning. And so right now, there are one out of seven humans on earth are saying that statement in the earth today. So that was developed, the Apostles' Creed. We still look to the Apostles' Creed, first called the Nicene Creed, as kind of something, the basic foundation 
This is what basic Christianity is. I believe one God, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Most of you have heard it. Well, Christianity is forming at this point, but realize they don't have the same form of understanding of salvation that we do. They do not give a teaching that is a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. In fact, a guy named Augustine around the year 400 actually defined what it meant to be a Christian, and he gave us a definition that I don't agree with. Most of you probably wouldn't agree with it. He came to say, in order to be a Christian, you must believe what the church teaches. Okay, that's what faith was. Now, to us today, that can sound pretty crazy because we are not as dependent upon the church. We are independent people. Um, we all have lots of information coming to us. But at that time in history, nobody could read. And the church was thought of as the pillar of truth. The church is the standard that teaches us about God. Therefore, it is, wasn't such a crazy idea uh, 1,700 years ago to tell people, if you believe what the church teaches, you will be a Christian. It's not as crazy back then as it is today because you've got the multitudes who can't read. So who are you going to believe? You're going to hear what the church teaches, and then you're going to believe it, and you'll be Christian. That became the definition of what a Christian was for 1,000 years. Augustine's definition of what it is to be a Christian, you believe what the church teaches. Well, after a thousand years, most of Europe claims to be Christian, and Christianity dominated. But what was their definition of Christian? People believe what the church teaches, and in particular, they believe the creed. Now, along comes these reformers 500 years ago, Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, and it was a time in history when the established church based in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, was not in a good place. There was a lot of sexual perversion, a lot of lukewarmness. So it was a time in history when people were critical of the established church, and they had good reason to be critical of the established church. Martin Luther was one of the most strongest voices, but to understand his personality, I don't take this wrongly, but he was a very harsh, old, gruffy old guy, and the best thing you got, you ever hear Rush Limbaugh on the radio? Okay, Martin Luther, that was his personality. He thought, you know, I, with, half, um, with, ha with half my brain tied behind my back, I can out-discuss anybody. He was that kind of a personality. But Martin Luther challenged the established church, and he saw the church as teaching people you have to work to get to heaven, works orientation. So he was trying to press the point that no, your works can't get you to heaven. It's only by grace. Praise God for that reformation. That was an enlightenment. Okay. He also was pointing to the, the church centered in Rome and said, what's happening in Rome is not true Christianity. So he tried to shift people to get their allegiance to the Bible rather than Rome. So he came and got a little letter and nailed it up on a door in, that, in a place where they discuss things like this as a group because that's where all the brainy people were. Yeah. So in Germany, um, uh, that's where there was a big, uh, it was a Roman Catholic universities at that point. At this point in history, there are 82 universities throughout Europe. Um, all 82 are owned by the Roman Catholic Church. All 82 universities' primary goal was to train priests. Okay, secondarily was to train lawyers. They weren't called lawyers, but uh, public speakers. And then number three, to train scientists. All 82 universities, but kingdom of God on earth. They were thinking along those lines. But now comes Martin Luther, and he's pointing at the established church. He says, that's not where you look. You need to look to the Bible instead. We are grateful today that he liberated us to start thinking. But even to have that thought that the Bible should be the authority would have been a very hard concept before that date. The printing press was now created so you can have Bibles. It would have been hard to try push that point a thousand years earlier when people can't have Bibles. They didn't have, they couldn't read, okay? So now we're rising up in Calvin. John Calvin was another voice at this point. John Calvin stands up and he is making another adjustment in what must you believe to be a Christian? He is saying, it's not what the church teaches, but you must believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You want to know exactly what you must believe? Jesus Christ died 
on the cross for my sins. And if I believe that, I am saved. That has dominated Protestant Christianity for 500 years. Now, people like me look at that, and I disagree with that also. In Campus Crusade for Christ, when we were in college, you believed that, right? Yes. yes. John Calvin, the basic theology he taught is the foundation of evangelical Christianity today. So evangelical Christianity, the foundation, comes out of Calvinism, which modern day is called Reformed theology. So mature Calvinism is called Reformed theology, but at the very foundation was believe that Jesus died on the cross. Now, I have shifted my theology one more step. I hope you would consider it, that it's not belief in what Jesus did that saves you. No, it's belief in a person, Jesus Christ. There's a difference between believing in a person and believing in what they did. You know, and you look in the scriptures, for example, Zacchaeus was a tax collector up a tree listening to Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your home. He goes to the home of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus says, hey, if I've cheated anybody, I will give them four times back. And I'm going to give away half of my possessions and give them to the poor. Jesus, today salvation has come to this house. Okay, now Zacchaeus did not know Jesus was going to die on the cross. And yet Jesus says salvation has come. An adulterous woman wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. Jesus says, today you're saved. Okay, well, that woman did not know Jesus was going to die on the cross. Okay, it is not an understanding of what Jesus did on the cross that saves you. No, it's belief in a person, Jesus Christ. It's like if a daughter loves her father, she may never realize all her father did for her throughout her life. But if she loves her father, she's going to get all the benefits that her father worked for her all these years. It's the same thing with Jesus. It's not believing in what he did. It's believing in a person. Belief is to attach yourself to something. It is to anchor yourself. You anchor yourself in the person, Jesus Christ, and you get all the benefits of what he did on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. So it's important that we realize, what is it that I'm trying to lead people to? And we want to have them believe in a person. It's not the act of dying on the cross that is the mediator. It's Jesus Christ is the mediator between us and God, the person. Now that opens up the door for maybe you to understand more people are saved than you realize. Like a child in Sunday school can learn about Jesus Christ and they believe in Jesus, but might not understand why he died on the cross. What is necessary to believe in the person, not in what they did. So trying to adjust exactly what is it that the Bible teaches, we even have to correct guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, which is a huge thing at this time in history because these guys are such heroes in Christianity. For anybody to try correct them is like a monumental challenge. What do you think you're doing correcting the greats? Well, I'm sorry, there'll be no revival. There'll be no awakening unless we come to greater truth. We take another step. You are going to have to challenge your present beliefs to take another step into where we're going. And this next generation is challenging everything. The next generation, you know, lower than us, they're questioning everything and they will never buy the type of Christianity that most of us were raised in. We have to be willing to shift and change and challenge ourselves even to present to them the possibility that perhaps this would be a better way to understand because the church is taking a different shape in the earth. Part of this is because we are now sharing with Christians around the world who have different worldviews. They're reading the same Bible we have, but they're coming to different understandings. That is radically changing Western Christianity. Like in um, The Prodigal Son? Okay. Um, in, I'm going to read this. I, I, don't, I just want you to listen. We all know the story of The Prodigal Son. It's in Luke 15. Well, just let me read something to you um, because it's really eye-opening. Right out of the middle of The Prodigal Son, it says here, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. 
Okay, then the story goes, he returns to his father, and the father loves the son and welcomes him back in. So let me ask you a question now that kind of opens our eyes to see. Um, according to what I read, why did the son end up with nothing? Squander his possessions, right? Okay, that's what Americans or everybody in Western Christianity hears. If I read that same passage in Tanzania, Africa, they will say, no one gave me anything to eat. If I read it in Russia, they will say, because there was a severe famine in the land. All three of those are equally mentioned. Your ear only hears what you're culturally in tune to. You see, there were two, you see, in Russia, there were over two million people who starved to death in the last century because of famine in Tanzania it's culturally um, imperative that if someone asks you for food you have to give it to them that is their culture okay they have no standard for squandering in it, that we do squandering is a is a western value system and we they don't even hear it they say what's the big deal why did your mind get stuck on that you crazy western people okay <laughs> You and I are hearing what we want to hear. We hear what reinforces what we already believe. That's why it's really hard to change people because we're more stubborn than we realize. <laughs> okay? I'm trying to get people to think differently here. Okay? Even when we talk about faith, what's required for um, salvation, the definition of faith shifted. Down here below the line, Western thought, that faith is seen as a function of the intellect. Because in Western civilization, the intellect is the control center of your being. It goes all the way back to Plato and Socrates. The very foundation of Western civilization, we have these philosophers who assume the intellect, logic, is what brings truth. That is seated in everyone in this room's thinking. It's in our educational system. And yet the Bible teaches that the heart is the control center of our being. For example, in Proverbs, from the heart flow all the issues of life. Well, many cultures around the world are more biblical than Americans. They actually believe the heart is the control center of their being. Therefore, as a people, they're much more sensitive to what's in their hearts than they are in the mind. We spend 12 or more years trying to train the intellects of our children, where the Bible says, no, guard over your heart. And... It will say in other passages in Proverbs, he who rules his heart is greater than he who rules a city. That if you can rule your heart. America has the opposite way of thinking, the cliche that the heart wants what the heart wants. Implies that you can't control your heart, but your heart is just this, you know, frivolous thing that can lead you anywhere, which is a lie. Okay. So we've got to rethink, okay, different categories. Okay, you see, I was teaching last night about how we are Western people. The foundation of our thoughts, I was explaining there is a natural world and a spiritual world, and they're thought like two boxes, spiritual world and natural world. I hope you can all see. We think in boxes. We think there's a spiritual world and natural world up there. Because of that, it's very easy for us to think of the soul as very different than the physical body. Okay? We can imagine, because there's two totally different boxes, that the physical body can take on arms and legs and a head. It's what we see. And then it's okay for us to imagine that in the spiritual realm, we have some type of soul. And I'm drawing a little circle there and then dividing like a pie into three pieces. Because Western civilization is basically accepted the soul is the mind, will, and emotions. Most of you have been taught that. That did not come from the Bible. That came from Aristotle, okay, who was not a godly person. Okay, there's no teaching in the Bible that says people are mind, will, and emotions. If you jump up here to the Hebraic biblical understanding, you remember, I don't want to expand too much on it, but I was teaching that the Hebraic foundation, biblical foundation, is to see creation and that within creation are both the spiritual and natural realms. And I was explaining that if you think of a flat plane as the natural realm, then a spiritual realm right behind it, that that would be a more accurate understanding. And I actually divided into three different levels, the natural world, and the behind one is the third heavens, the middle one is the second heavens, 
And then if I draw an earth, a circle on the, on the natural realm, everything you look up when you go outside, that's the first heavens. So biblical thought is there's a first heavens, third heavens, and second heavens. Third heavens is the dwelling of God. Second heavens is the spiritual realm. But now if I finally put all of these with inside of one box, so you can see that they don't really exist as planes, but the spiritual realm is right here. That's the biblical foundation of a worldview. Now, that changes how you understand human nature. If I draw a person here, their body, again, that doesn't look good. If I draw a person here, <laughs> whoa. If I draw a person here, the physical body, now you should look and see this thing as existing in the both spiritual and natural realm. That spiritual realm is not way up there therefore my soul is not totally different than my body actually my soul is the exact same shape and size as my body is wow. so this is the biblical understanding but you can't come to this understanding with the western worldview thinking the spirituals up there the naturals down here tends to lead you to think that your soul can be different than your body but it's not for example um, there, yes, there is a spirit. I'm not talking about spirit yet. Body and soul. Your soul is the same shape and size. We know that from a lot of verses, especially verses that talk about a person after they've died. When your body decays and now it's shed, if you could see a person, just the invisible part of their being, they would look like their body. For example, you remember in Acts when Peter was thrown in prison, the other disciples went and hid um, because they knew Peter was in prison. They thought he might be put to death. But then Peter gets out of prison by a miracle, and he's knocking on the door to get in. And the disciples don't let him in because they don't know if it's Peter or his ghost. They don't know if it's Peter or the invisible part of his being. Why? Because their belief was the invisible part of you looks exactly like your body. So when Samuel was called up from the dead back in 1 Samuel... This was the forbidden thing to do. We're not supposed to do it. Yet he came up and he was recognizable in his face. Biblical thought is not, you're not a mind, will, and emotions. You're an invisible being. No, your soul is the invisible expression of your body. Your body is the physical expression of your soul. They are the same thing. You exist as a unit. You see, the Western mind compartmentalizes things. Now, it's profound how it influences. For example, in my life, I realized several years ago as I'm wrestling this, that I had two me's. There's, there's a perfect herald that I imagine out here. This perfect herald, I don't know where I formed it, but throughout my life, I had this goal that if I become the perfect herald, then I will be totally lovable, then God will like me, I'll be approved. There's the perfect herald, and then there's this me. And I lived a lot of years thinking God loves that, but he can't really love me. Now, that way of thinking is only possible for a Western brain because a Western brain has a tendency to divide us up. Most of the world wouldn't think that way. Over half the world already has this biblical foundation, but I tended to think, no, there's a fake me, which is perfect, and, and therefore I'm striving to become that perfect me, so subconsciously I'm thinking then I'll be loved. Well, there was a time when I realized I'm thinking like a Westerner, there's only one me. And I can bring them together and say, no, God loves this me. God loves the flawed version of me. Amen. That was a huge change in my life. Because I realized until I learned how to love the flawed me, I couldn't love the flawed Linda. Because I had two Lindas also. We've been married 41 years coming up this month, okay? But I realized I had a, a perfect Linda, a vision of a perfect Linda out here. And for many years of our marriage, I, I would have that, not even knowing I have it, but thinking if she could only be like this, then I could totally love her without reservation. If she would only turn into this perfect person, and she kind of knew it subconsciously, subconsciously there was always pressure on her to become that, or just to give up and say, I'm not, I can't do it. And to live in that kind of a dichotomy, thinking, well, he wants this perfect. And that perfect Linda, I kind of 
I hate to confess to it, but I knew what her hair was like. I knew how she would look. I knew everything, which is a terrible thing. I know her better than you. Yeah. And then one day in the course of our marriage, uh, it came to realization that perfect Linda, she's a bitch. I couldn't live with her anyway. So I got rid of the bitch. And I started loving this one. But I could not love this version of Linda if I hadn't simultaneously been learning how to love this me. That the flawed me I can love, the flawed Linda I can love, and it broke something both times of my life. Something broke and let me be more free. Okay. Those flaws are in Western Worldview. We tend to think in categories. Okay, that's good. So, so Western history and Western theology has settled on this issue that the soul is the mind, will, and emotions. Now, why is that? Because we have Plato and Aristotle. That's before Christianity is formed, 300 years before Jesus. Okay, they're trying to resolve what is the real human. And they are saying the body is not the real person. The body is just a container for the real person. As soon as you think in those terms, you can now conceive of them as totally different. But with Hebraic thought, they're not totally different. The body has what the soul has. It is not the mind, will, and emotions. In my body, I have neurons that allow me to think. Well, there is thought process that occur in your soul. Now, we could talk a long time, I don't want to, but let me just draw the spirit like a squivel of here, okay? There are thought processes in your spirit. And if you were to read the Bible in the original languages, you would find many verses indicating as he thought in his soul or other verses as he thought in his spirit. Jesus even, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, it said he has emotions in the level of his soul, but when Lazarus died, he wept in his spirit. You look in the original languages, your, your soul is not mind, will, and emotions, but your thoughts go throughout your being, your emotions go throughout your being, and your heart goes throughout your being, in the original, and your will. So if you want to shift your thinking from a Western Christian to a biblical Christian, okay, I hope you hear the jab in that. Okay, you would shift your way of thinking to say, no, the spiritual is just the reflection. It is this invisible expression of my body. The body is the physical expression of who I am. So this is an expo marker. An expo is a brand of a marker that has the ink to it. It has a lot of alcohol that dries quickly and allows you to write on a whiteboard or paper, but on the whiteboard, it is erasable, different than a permanent marker, which is a lot of work for a third grade teacher to get off when the students have gotten a hold of it and don't know the difference. I have just defined this marker in a Western way, okay? Hebraic way is... Oh. <laughs> so the Hebraic is always seeing the spiritual and natural totally interconnected. You cannot separate them. The Western mind tries to separate. Like, here's another good example, okay? So, in, in, in Western Christianity, we tend to think of the spiritual dynamics up here and the natural down here, and that if there's a spiritual problem, it has to be solved by a spiritual answer. And a natural problem has to be solved by a natural answer. We tend to think that way. Hebraics don't. Now, you can solve a spiritual problem with a natural answer. For example, um, if, if you have a child, a small child growing up, has a great spirit about him, everything is wonderful, um, but one day he goes and stays overnight with the neighbor um, family, but that's a rebellious family. Your child can come back with a spirit that it's just not your family spirit. There is something distracted there, and you think if, because you're a Christian, who believes spiritual is separate than natural, you may think, I gotta cast a little demon out of my boy, okay? Instead of doing that, um, 
you can talk to them you can play with them you can engage with them and their spirit will change now I hate to say this but sometimes one swat on the butt and the demon will leave now okay I'm not proposing we you know spank our kids and all that please don't take it that way I'm just saying there's a reality that physical uh, answer can solve a spiritual problem sometimes people go ahead so I'll start the story and then he'll finish it because I'm really bad at remembering the details. So in Hebraic, when they want to teach what the scripture is, like this book is unique to all other books because this book was authored by God, given to men, written and preserved for blankety blank years. Okay? That's this book. It's unique. But in Hebrew school, the rabbi would take a little piece of uh, a jar of honey, put a drop of honey on it, and then tell all the children at the same time, pick up the scriptures and lick the honey. And know from this day forward, that's what the scriptures are like. Hebraic thought attaches things together. Western thought separates, defines it why it's different than everything else. So it changes certain things that we read in the Bible. You know, one more good example of the spiritual and natural integrated. So we live in Washington State, and we're in the country. There's an old abandoned barn on the property next to us, um, and and hundred years, years old. And quite a few years ago, this was about 20 years ago, um, when the high school kids in town kind of discovered it as a place to kind of party, that sort of thing. It's not on our land, but nobody watched over that land. Well, it grew from partying to some satanic stuff was going on. Well, I am a spiritual person, a Western person, who especially was still could not escape. I mean, I'm still trying to escape this. But about 20 years ago, this was going on in the barn next door. So being a Christian who thinks spiritual problems are solved by spiritual answers, I went and prayed in tongues around the building. I plead the blood of Jesus. I crown around. I did everything I could, buying the powers of darkness. I come home, and Linda says... Why don't you take the barn doors off and mow the grass? I went back praying. Okay. You know, sometimes I don't listen right away. It takes me some time, okay? Well, I didn't. I continued to pray. But sure enough, about a week later, the young man down the street got his tractor, mowed the grass, and took the barn doors off. Do you know, as soon as he did that, all witchcraft quit. You mean you can stop witchcraft by taking barn doors off and mowing the grass? You see, the Western mind can't deal with that. That is Hebraic thought. And I would propose to you that most demons leave by love and communication rather than by casting them out. Jesus says you're clean because of the words I've spoken to you. That you get straightened out just by hearing, by natural things. Sometimes somebody will come up and say, hey, will you pray this poverty spirit off me? I like to lay my hands on and say, get a job! In Jesus' name. Okay? That poverty spirit will leave you just like that, okay? So, you're cute. So, I want to talk, now that we've talked about substances, okay, I want to talk a little bit about grace. And I know that's another teaching, but I have a heart for somebody in this place and I feel like they need to know the reality of the substance of grace. So grace, first of all, we've got to abandon the Western consciousness of grace. Okay, I was teaching last night about how the development of our theology formed. And I added to the picture up here saying after Plato and Aristotle, another guy came, Plotinus, and saw God radiating out all of his attributes, everything, his will and therefore, including his grace, would radiate out of him. Well, this became the, 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 the lens through which all Western theology formed. If you can imagine this line proceeding from God, radiating out. If God willed something, if he wills you, for example, to um, go to Africa, okay, then God would give grace, but his grace would compel you to go to Africa. If you have 
this lens you're reading the Bible through, God's will is predestined to happen. Therefore, if he gives you grace to do something, that grace will make you. Um, the people who follow this theology called it efficacious grace, meaning it will affect what it's sent out to do or irresistible grace because if God gives grace in alignment with his will then that grace is a kind of grace that forces you to do now you have to get rid of that unmerited favor is how it's worded in western theology up here grace is a different definition most accurate one I hear being used today is the empowering presence of God enabling you to be who God created you to be Okay? That doesn't force you, but it's God giving you everything you need to accomplish his will and become what he's created you to be. You have to partner with the grace. You step into the grace. And there are many verses that imply, don't fall short of the grace of God. Um, you know, there's verses that talk about you cooperating. Paul says, I labor according to the grace that's being given to me. You have different grace in your life than other people. Okay, so we're shifting from grace is the controlling influence of God to this is a father offering you what you need to help you succeed and accomplish great things. Now substance. So Peter, dad calls. He's like, I really our youngest son, I really want to go backpacking. And so Harold buys a backpack and gets all the gear, and he gives him the backpack. But if he doesn't take it and go to a mountain, he'll never use it. That's grace. That's grace. Okay. When we start thinking with this basic foundation of our worldview that the spiritual is right here, now you start reading the scriptures, you will find that the scriptures actually envision the heart as the doorway from one realm to the other realm. In fact, the heart is the doorway through which you bring things from the spiritual realm into the natural. And example, when my heart is directed toward my wife, in the next dimension, there is a literal link. That these are not just figures of speech. As soon as you have this worldview, you will start reading the Bible and you'll start saying, maybe I should take that literally. Like in Colossians 2.5, where Paul says, I'm with you in spirit, though absent in body. Well, only if you have a biblical foundation, a worldview, can you even consider if that's possible. But I have come to believe that wherever my heart is oriented, I am literally joined to that. Okay, so in Philippians chapter uh, 1, 6, most of us know for um, I'm confident that God is at work in you and he will perfect that which he began in you. Most of you know that verse, okay? And Paul is writing to Philippians saying, I know God's at work in you and he's going to complete it. I have the confidence. But we usually stop at verse 6. The key is verse 7. The very next verse says, because I have you in my heart. There's a direct connection between knowing that God is at work in you and you having them in your heart. Now, it doesn't work in every relationship, but Paul was their spiritual father. He is releasing grace into their life, and he says, I'm confident. God's got you. Why? Because I sense you right here. With a Hebraic biblical cosmology, don't let that word, that's the foundation of your worldview, cosmology, you will actually see no there is something to holding someone in your heart that literally you can have them in contrast when paul would say like in first corinthians chapter 5 that he was going to release judgment on an immoral man in the corinthian church who was having sexual relationship with his mother okay that was an abomination paul says but i'm with you in spirit and as i'm with you in spirit i judge them and the word judge there is i will push him out of my heart why? So Satan would be loose. That there is some kind of divine connection between pulling people in your heart and pushing them out of your heart. Now, we're not, not recommending you do this. We're just trying to understand the dynamics. So did you see Joe today? He looked a little off and he looked a little funny. It's kind of a bummer. I hope he's okay. Out of the heart. And there goes Joe. Sometimes we're actually giving the enemy permission to destroy other people by letting them out of our heart. 
In fact, you might be a parent and you've got a teenager who's rebellious and you're getting thoughts in your head. Now, Satan's and devil's only power is to put thoughts, okay? Thoughts are here. Faith is of the heart, okay? So thoughts, the enemy might put thoughts in your head. Your child's not going to make it. Your child's not going to make it. Your child's going to make it. Now, as long as you don't agree with those thoughts, you're continuing to hold your child in your heart, you're confident. God's at work in my child. They're going to make it. But if a day comes when you've been listening to those thoughts for so long, you agree with it. It drops into your heart. Your heart now comes to an agreement, my child's not going to make it. You may have let your child out of your heart and given permission for that evil spirit to now attack your child. See, you and I are doing warfare, but demons and angels understand authority. In the world of the spirit, there's a very accurate authority thing going on. And years ago, when we passed the church, I recognized it happening in our congregation where somehow I would just be aware of somebody like two weeks before, and I don't know why, they were just kind of drifting away, and then soon enough, two weeks later, they'd leave the church. And I started to recognize a correspondence between my awareness of them drifting away, and then they would leave. And I started saying, God, is there anything I can do here? Now, I don't want to... There's, there's, there's something sometimes people use witchcraft and control and these kind of things. We're not talking about that. I'm just saying as the shepherd of my congregation, I don't want to be responsible for letting people go. So I'm just going to keep loving them no matter what. If God moves them to another congregation, praise God. But I don't want it to happen because I pushed them out of my heart. That which is in your heart releases grace to wherever you go. One of the most powerful illustrations there's a huge church on the West Coast. It's got about 15,000 or so. But back when it was small, we were very close with the pastor. He had about 2,000 the church at the time. And Dr. Cho, who has the largest church in the world, visited his church. And he, the pastor was telling me this in the office. He said, Dr. Cho came up to him. He said, how many medical doctors you got in your church? And my pastor friend said, none. Dr. Cho said, your fault. And then he walked away. And the pastor friend chased after, what do you mean it's my fault? He says, the only reason doctors won't come to your church is because you have a judgment in your heart against doctors. You've been so into the healing faith movement that you've actually formed a rejection thinking it's second class. And because of that rejection, doctors won't come to your ministry. See, people, as soon as they step across that threshold, can feel if they're welcome or not. That welcome is radiating from the hearts of the leadership. It can be against a certain race of people, be a certain age, can be a certain financial class. Now, as soon as I heard that story, Dr. Cho saying it, and he was then explaining, you've got to make your heart bigger if you want to minister. Only to the people you learn how to love will your hearts be hearable, your words be hearable. Because if they're not in your heart, your words are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And they won't want to stay around your church until you bring them into your heart. So I realized when I heard that, saying, wait a minute. I've never been able to get to politicians. I've always wanted to. But I had made jokes about politicians through the years. How can you be a Christian politician? Those kind of stupid things. And I had formed a judgment in my heart against him. And I realized, i got to repent of this. And I repented of it. I said, God, I'm sorry. It was on this Saturday. I repented of it. Next day, I had to fly out to go to the Philippines to Manila. There was a typhoon, so we couldn't get our second flight down to Mindanao, another one of the islands. Stuck at the airport. So one of our team, we just asked, hey, we're stuck here. Uh, one of the ladies says, well, I know somebody in town. Let me call them, see if they come pick us up. Sure enough, this lady comes, pick us up in her van. She takes us for lunch right where the Senate of the Philippines was having lunch. So the day after I repented, I get to be with the Senate of the Philippines. I repented because my heart had made jokes about them. But as soon as I said, no, God, they're your people. No, God, you love them. No, God, I'm sorry. I want your love. Very next day, I was right there. So ever since I repented, open doors have been into that realm. So it's serious enough for for us to be instructed about what's in our heart during communion. Yes. So when it's talking about, you know, check over your heart. In particular, you remember Matthew chapter 5, where it says, when you come into the throne room of God, if you have aught with a brother or sister, 
get out of the throne room, go make amends with them before you come into the throne room of God. You see, if you go into the throne room, there is something about the throne room, the manifest presence of God. Okay, so please, when I say throne room, uh, envision now the manifest presence he's talking about. In the manifest presence of God, you are having a covenant exchange with God. He is your covenant partner. I like to think of it as the, the wine is the covenant drink in Bible terms. When a man and a woman were going to give their child to another family in marriage, they would they would express their covenant, take wine together, and that was we are joining our lives together. The, the Holy Spirit's presence is like drinking wine. When you are in the manifest presence of God, you are experiencing covenant relationship. Something is happening where you're being fitly framed together. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says we're all baptized into one body by the Spirit. Okay, The stronger the manifest presence of God on a group of people, the more they become molded as one. If, if you attend a church where for years you sing a few hymnals and then you get out and leave, it, and you have to leave it someday, it's not that big a deal to leave a church like that. But if you've left a church where the presence of God manifested for years, it'll rip out your heart to ever have to leave that place. It'll be like something in you got torn. Why? Because in the manifest presence of God, there is a molding process going on. But now here you are going to the presence of God and you have a covenant drink. Well, in the midst of covenant, your friends are my friends. Your enemies are my enemies. The sins you forgive, they are forgiven. The sins you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. If you have someone's, you do not forgive them. In the manifest presence of God, God is coming into agreement with you. That's a scary thing. And Jesus says, get out of the presence. Go make amends with them first. Because through the years, I have found that if someone goes in the presence of God with a judgment in their heart... Now, there is some type of exchange, covenantal exchange going on. When you come out of the presence, go try to talk to that person. It doesn't matter what you say, it will be misunderstood. You will say, I like your shirt, and they will hear, why? Don't you like my pants? It doesn't matter how clearly you try to communicate, it will come in their ear differently because something happened in the spirit of your heart that put up a wall. Now, you can put up walls other times of your life by interactions, just unforgiveness, but it is especially sensitive in the manifest presence of God. It's especially critical. And you can actually literally cut yourself off from a group of people while you're in the presence of God. So if you have an unsaved spouse and you keep them in your heart while you're in the manifest presence of God, the Bible says... <laughs> I don't know how to put it. The Bible says, but let me draw that picture. Sometimes you'll have a group of intercessors. And just for example, let's say it's a group of lady intercessors. Let's say they get real tight praying. You know, that's a great group because the more they become union, you know, they can finish each other's sentences. The presence of God's been there. But if they start getting together, let's say one of these intercessor leaders has a judgment against her husband. My husband's a jerk. He's not walking with God. She can become so one with that group that in the manifest presence of God, she thinks my husband's a jerk. Now she leaves that group and goes, tries to talk to her husband. She'll find herself estranged from her husband even deeper than she was before. And it can deteriorate the relationship where if you and I understood the power of the presence of God, we would watch over our hearts a whole lot more carefully. It's the same thing, that the, the unbeliever is sanctified by the believer. But a believer is a believer, not someone who is judging, not someone who is saying you're a jerk. A believer is someone who believes for you. A believer is someone who, like Philippians chapter 1 says, I'm confident God's at work in you because you're in my heart. I'm confident God's at work in my unbelieving spouse. You know why? Because they're right here in my heart. You maintain a confidence. You keep your children in your heart. doesn't matter where you are in the world. You keep your heart in the right place, and you know they're protective. When Linda and I were learning this back when we first started traveling, I'd be in Africa or somewhere, and if I got really busy in ministry and consumed, I would just forget her and the kids. And as soon as I did that, it was like at home, everything would start going crazy. 
It was the kids were misbehaving. You know, the washing machine broke down. The garbage fell. Everything. And she called me up. Are we still in your heart? <laughs> you know. And I, oh, I'm sorry. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I call him back in my heart, and peace would return to the home. If you start embracing this worldview, you start seeing the connections that you never saw before. Now, grace is the power of God. It's substance. substance. It's something. Uh, what would be another example of grace? A, a substance. Love? Love. Okay, a substance. Do you love me? You're, you, I'm not feeling any love. We all, we all feel that, right? So grace is a substance, and it has power, and we have to receive it. So, you know, we're coming to try help people that if they would embrace the biblical cosmology, they would start reading the Bible in a whole lot more literal language where you can have faith that this stuff is really true. There is permeating Western Christianity a mythological way of thinking about the Bible, that it's figurative, it's not real, it's not substance, that this relationship I have with my wife is an imaginary link rather than a true link. Because of our worldview, we tend not to believe to the depth that it's meant. But the half of the world that has this worldview and now is embracing Christianity have more reality to their Christianity than Western people do because when they read it, they believe it. Um, I wanna, uh, you know, it's already 12.30, we gotta leave. Stomachs are growling. I wanna, I wanna give you one more example that's really important to me, okay? Um, stuff, there's substance to stuff. I would even put there's, there's substance to glory. Glory has substance. In, in fact, I like the terminology, you know, the presence of God is when you don't wanna leave, the glory is when you can't leave. The, the Hebraic word for glory literally came from the liver. Have you ever seen a liver of an animal? It's just a heavy part of your body, and it, like, the liver of God is here. The glory of God is here, okay? I, that can be ugly for some of you, okay? My first degree was in wildlife biology. I was a biologist, so I think in those terms, okay? Um, so I want you to think of glory as literally substance that is there. There is a... A uh, revival that happened in England about 1925. There was about 4,000 people were present at this location where the presence of God came. And a lot of them were driving the old Model A's, Model T's back then. And the presence of God was so heavy that when the meeting was over, every person left quietly and no one took their cars because they were afraid to start their cars in the presence of God. Everybody left, and they left their cars there because the place was so holy, nobody dared make a sound. In Bend, Oregon, they got 18 inches of snow in 12 hours. They have snow six months a year, right? But we were about an hour south of them, and they said it's like zombie land. People literally left their cars because they couldn't navigate in Bend, Oregon, where they get snow. So that was what it was like. I want you to think of the glory of God as literal substance reality, okay? Now, take it in the substance of you believe in somebody, not just God, but you believe like in a coach. You believe in a coach. That coach will be able to give you something if you believe in him that he could not give you if you weren't believing in him. If, if you are a training athlete, if you lose faith in your coach, they will not your, their encouragement will not be as fortifying. Their counsel, you will not weigh it as heavy. But the more you believe in them, the heavier the words, the substance of the words literally carry strength, and they come into you. If, if you are measuring my words, and you're receiving my words, that there's, my words are, there's some spirit to them, that there's, my words are not just vibrations in the air, but they're spiritual and substance. You are making choices whether am I embracing this or not. If you embrace a message, you literally can receive substance um, from that. But now glory. Um, Herod, in the book of Acts, was receiving the glory of the people when they were worshiping him. Herod 
the king of Judea was being worshipped and the people started saying the words of a God rather than man, the words of a God rather than man and worshipping Herod. Herod received the glory and then God struck him. His bowels gushed out, okay? His insides rotted. Now, think of that as literal stuff rather than figurative. Receiving glory seems to literally destroy do something to you and I. If you receive glory that's meant for God, rather than, job, yeah, rather than good job, you literally allow people to adore you and look up to you. You literally corrupt your own nature because you cannot contain glory that's meant from, for God. Jesus says to the Pharisees, how can you believe if you receive the glory of man? implying you can't. That if you receive glory from humans, your faith will go down. You will lose faith. You will decrease in authority if you receive glory that's meant from God to yourself. Some of the greatest, yes. That's why we have a servant kingdom. Yes. And that's why it's safe if nobody, if you, you do all the work and nobody knows you're there. That's the power. When I was talking earlier about um, how I realized there were two heralds and I had to get rid of this one fake herald that God loves the flawed one. There was two Lindas. Those were turning points in my life. There was another turning point with this glory thing. Um, I was sitting, in a, I was in a church here in a worship service and I don't know why this might sound blasphemy to you, okay? And, and so I realized I repented immediately afterwards, Okay. But I was sitting there thinking, God, what does it feel like to have all these people praising you? God, okay, now, please give me tolerance here. I allowed myself for a moment because I wanted to feel like, God, what do you feel when people praise you? I allowed myself for a moment to think of myself on his throne room as if the people were praising and adoring me. And I was apologetic. God, I'm sorry. God, God, sorry. I only want to do this for one second just to feel what it feels like. Because when I worship, I want to know what I'm giving you. I want to feel, God, will you let me just, just, I just want to know. I'm going to get out of the chair immediately. But will you just, okay? You understand I'm trying to repent, but at the same time, and Mrs. Worship, I put myself right there, imagining all these people are worshiping me instead of God. I can feel the substance, the adoration. And me, I repent, oh God, oh God, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. But it was flowing toward me. And that day I made a decision. I will never go back to that place again. It did something to my spirit that I know I don't belong there. I don't, I can't have it. I know it's wrong to be there. That's place for God. But I tasted it. I know what it tastes like. I'm never going to taste it again. It drove home a lesson that has fixed my spirit and does something in my nature. And even while we were worshiping today, I was looking at the worship team up here, and I was thinking, I hope nobody ever up there starts receiving the adoration. I hope nobody starts allowing glory to come into them because it will corrupt their nature. And I can imagine, imagine if this worship team goes on for years never receiving glory to themselves. How far can God take them? And then I started thinking, what if the church could as a people keep their head down below that glory and kept themselves in a posture that's not for me you don't have to say it it's just something if every Christian had in their heart I don't receive glory I wonder how far God would take us there's just something that I don't know if you dare do it or if you should do it but and if you do it, ask God to forgive you immediately afterward, okay? But to posture yourself there and say, God, what does it feel like 
to receive adoration. I, I just want to know so for this day forward, I will never let it happen to me. I just want to taste it. Um, you know, I'm not saying you need to do it, but if you ever feel called, repent of me laughter, but you learn something. It did something. Sports people do it. You can, you can be a movie star or sports person, receive the adoration of the crowds, and it will corrupt your spirit. They become corrupt inside. But I wish God's people could stay away from that. So I think we've done what we're supposed to have done. For all of them or just? I, I have a person oh, yes. In my heart. Yes, you do. Okay. And they would be the crowds you tell me what to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me speak grace. Grace is substance. Signs and wonders follow the speaking of the word. That which we declare and create faith for exists in this room. Father, we want to receive more grace. Often we have felt unworthy. Often we've had a false us that we thought maybe you would give grace to that other me, but you want to give grace to this me. Father, you want to empower us giving grace. So I speak with your authority, Father. I speak with faith, with a heart firmly set. Grace, grace, grace into your spirit, grace into your soul, and grace into your body. Rise up, men and women of God. Become what you're created to be. Grace, the grace, the grace. The grace of a father. Yes. His hands laid upon you declaring, become what I've created you to become. Become what you've been created to become. Become what you've been created to become. I lift you up. I lift you up. I lift you up and put you in a high place. This is my heart for you. Grace. 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 Grace to the extension of your being. Throughout all those you love, to all that you love, grace, grace, grace into this world through your doorway of your heart, confident that they will make it, confident that God is at work, confident enlarging yourself to become the transmitter of mighty grace. They will make it. In Jesus' name. Everybody say amen.